we're not inviting them to just pray a prayer and sprinkle Jesus on top of what they're already doing. Right. We're inviting them into a completely different system of beliefs. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Krista Bontrager, the theology mom. She's also uh, the partner in crime of Monique Dusan over at the Center for Biblical Unity. They have a podcast together called All the Things, which tell them when, uh, when All the Things is on. Well, it streams live uh, most Saturday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. And it, I mean, they get into the nitty gritty of stuff. I love your podcast. Really trying to bring the Christian worldview to bear on real life. Yes. So. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely your go-to podcast for that, for sure. Like they're not scared. They're not scared to talk about anything. So check it out, all the things. But today we're going to talk about something we've been talking about, which is basically what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Because I think with the type of ministry that we, we both do, where sometimes, you know, we have to point out this kind of teaching is false. This kind of teaching is not biblical, or even this kind of teaching is unorthodox and heretical even. And so that gets a lot of pushback from people because they'll say, well, how can you narrow it down right. to certain essentials? And so when I was working on my book, I remember Googling the question, what are the essentials of Christianity? And I'll bet that was an interesting it, search result. <laughs> it really was because like the first five or six articles that came up all had different lists, different numbers of beliefs on the lists, different beliefs on the different lists. And I thought, man, this is a question that needs, I mean, I, and I've seen the way other people have treated the question. And so I thought we would just discuss that yeah. today. It's a really worthy question because it's one that I get with some regularity. My background is as a theologian and looking at things from a theological point of view. And so people will write in like, well, how do I know if something is biblical or reflects sound doctrine? You know, what are those mm -hmm. criteria? Or what I get, I'm sure you probably get this too, people send me links to things mm -hmm. and they want me to watch an hour long video and tell them whether or not it's sound. I would rather teach them how to have that discernment for themselves so that they yeah. can evaluate. And I think even having a discussion about the essentials requires first, like defining the word essential, like what do we mean when we say yeah. essential, but also establishing the fact that there are categories. There are beliefs that are more important than others. And I think a great place to start with that is when Paul records the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and we can look at that in a moment, but he starts before he goes to the creed, he says, uh, this is of first importance. So there are beliefs that are of first importance. Just regarding the definition of what we mean when we're talking about essential doctrines, yeah. how, would you, how would you go about framing that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I prefer to use the term core beliefs um, and looking at those things that Christians have historically believed and kind of identified. Also part of that 1 Corinthians 15 passage Paul says, I am passing these things on to you that I have received. And so there's an idea of what you and I refer to as historic Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, what are those essentials that Christians, particularly in the first 300 years of the church, um, rallied around? And what did they understand as what it meant to be a Christian? How did they define it? I like to look at the Nicene Creed. It's the one kind of summary statement of our faith that all branches of Christianity agree upon. If you're in a more ancient faith stream, it's sometimes recited at every service. Mm -hmm. And I think it identifies a lot of those essentials, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It identifies what we call the incarnation, that Jesus came in the flesh as God and human, that he mm -hmm. um, lived and was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried and rose again. And that we look forward to him coming again to judge the living and the dead and that his reign will have no end. Yeah. These are kind of what I, this is, the, if I were to make a list, my list would probably focus a lot on the Nicene Creed and the things that 
that, that Christians have historically identified. And one thing I think would be, after we kind of go through some of the more specific beliefs, it might be worthwhile to revisit the Nicene Creed and talk about why you think, because there are a lot of progressive churches that recite the Nicene Creed. I was in a progressive church that would recite the Nicene Creed once a month, and uh, but it was more of a novelty to them uh, because behind closed doors, there were discussions like, well, I don't really believe this one, I don't believe this one, but people think, well, if I just say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's enough. And it is enough if you mean by those words, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what the church has historically meant. But you can also sort of change definitions and yeah. it can mean something else, but it can sound right. And so right. hopefully what I'd love to get to the bottom of today is to give people just a general idea of you know, what, what do you have to believe to be a Christian? And it's gonna require a lot of nuance mm -hmm. because first of all, what we're not talking about are just boxes we check, like giving intellectual assent to some belief, right. like check these boxes and you're a Christian. Because as we know, um, the Bible says that the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe Jesus is God. They believe he was resurrected from the dead. They believe he died on the cross for the sins of mankind, but they're not saved. Right. And so there's there's a component there that it's it's literally not just like giving intellectual assent. Right. And I love the analogy that uh, Greg Kokel from Santa Reason uses. Uh, he actually gave this to me to use in a talk, so I just want to credit him. But he said, you know, it's when you put your trust in Jesus, there are certain things you have to believe, things you you have to know about who he is and what you are and, and how all of that works together. But it's sort of like an airplane. If you go somewhere on an airplane, you can believe all the right things about the airplane, that it's going to get you to your destination, that you'll be able to breathe and be safe and have a seatbelt on and all these, these things. But you haven't put active trust in that belief till you put your body on the airplane. Like you have to get on the plane. And so I like to think of essential beliefs that way because it's not, yes, you, you, there are things you have to know and believe, but it's not just checking a box. You're actually getting on the plane. Like you're yeah. putting your trust in the person of Jesus. Um, and so how I tend to, and how I talk about it in my book, uh, I do use the word essential, although I like core too. Um, but, but I like to identify what I would say essential as being essential for salvation. Mm -hmm. So if it's something we can argue about in heaven, then it doesn't mean it's not important, but it's not going to be like a core essential regarding salvation. It's not going to have to do with the state of your eternal soul. Yeah. I think I, I expanded a little bit more than, than just salvation. I definitely think that there's the, the core of it is definitely salvation. First Corinthians 15, but historically Christianity is this network of beliefs. Mm -hmm. It is not just praying the sinner's prayer. They're, right. they're, you know, that if you don't have the Trinity, you don't have Christianity. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the incarnation, you don't have Christianity. And so when I was 15 <laughs> and I came to faith in Christ, definitely was not 100% cognizant of right. all of these beliefs. So I think that there's a difference between saying that something is necessary in our awareness. Mm -hmm. Like pretty much all I knew was I'm a sinner. I was grasping onto yes. Jesus with, and I needed hope. And I, I hope had a name suddenly yes. and his name was Jesus. And yeah. so I walked into that hope. Now, could I have defined the Trinity super specifically? No, not until I was 22. Mm -hmm. Did uh, my, my friend, uh, Ken Samples teach a class on the Trinity. And then I'm like, oh, this is how you explain it. This is, these are yeah. the details. But I didn't deny the Trinity either. And mm -hmm. so it was embedded. It was underneath my framework, even if it wasn't in my conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. To be a Christian was to hold this worldview. And mm -hmm. so when we're inviting people into a relationship with the Lord, really what we are inviting them into is an entire worldview. Yeah. We're not inviting them to just pray a prayer and sprinkle Jesus on top of what they're already doing. Right. We're inviting them into a completely different system of beliefs. So those core beliefs, as I see, I, I like to make things tangible. So looking at the Nicene Creed, I see, I, I see that as a tangible summary of our faith. But then I also look at convictions mm -hmm. because convictions to me is, is things that are still embedded in the Christian worldview historically, 
but our topics not covered in the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Things like the doctrine of, of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Nicene Creed doesn't say anything about the doctrine of Scripture. Right. And so for that summary, I like to look at the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Mm -hmm. That gives some very good tangibles of what a wide array of Christian scholars have affirmed as being critical to our beliefs about the Bible. Um, the, the Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics is another very tangible statement that I see as being convictions. Yeah. Like so vitally important. Yeah. Not covered in the Nicene Creed, but still vitally important. Yeah. I like the Nashville Statement as another set of convictions defining marriage and what the church has historically believed about marriage, sex, and gender. Yeah. So those are things that to me are other belief statements that are topics that we also need to be conversant on if we're going to have a fully orbed Christian worldview. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting that you're bringing up different, you know, of course, national statement and uh, the Chicago statements, they're not considered creeds in, in a certain sense, but they kind of are yeah. in, a, in the sense that the Nicene Creed, these creeds were in response to be beliefs that were historically held that were under attack. Right. So you have uh, the Council of Nicaea, they're coming together because Arius was coming along with this sort of anti-Trinitarian uh, view of Jesus. And so Athanasius and some of these guys are like, no, 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 we're gonna, we're gonna hammer this out right. now because what you're bringing is contrary to what we believe as Christians. And so that's why that council met. And that's why some of these creeds focus so intently on certain things. Like I look at the Nicene Creed and I think, well, there's not like a real strong statement on substitutionary atonement in right. it. But that's because they were focused on the, the nature problems. of Jesus. Yeah. yeah, other problems that were arising. And same with uh, Chicago Statement on inerrancy and, and the Nashville Statement, of course, being in response to the rise of uh, LGBTQ activism and affirmation even among people who uh, would call themselves Christians. And so we have these sort of statements come along where the church says, okay, we, we have to address this right now. And it's not that we're inventing doctrine. Right. It's we're clarifying what Christians have historically believed about certain things, but now up comes a cultural controversy, things start to get muddy, and then Christians say, okay, let's sit down and put this in writing. Yeah. You know, let's put down in writing what we have always said about these things. Yeah. And so that's how I see those statements. And so for, for wanting to know like, well, how do I have clarity? I, I point people to look at these things for specifics yeah. as summaries. And, and you can go to the Nashville Statement, for example, all the scriptures are listed there so you can look them up and see what the biblical foundation is. I look at them as summaries, shorthand ways of identifying what scripture says. Yeah. So A minute ago you mentioned sort of these two different categories within the context of core or essential yeah. or whatever word yeah. we want to use. And that would be beliefs you would have to act actively affirm. And then there's sort of this other category of beliefs you could be unaware of, yeah, uh, but you wouldn't deny them. Right. And so I love uh, one of the framers of the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy is Dr. Norm Geisler. Mm -hmm. And so he spent quite a bit of time studying the essentials. He, he studied down through church history, what do you have to believe to be a Christian? And so I, I kind of followed him in my section on the essentials in, in my book. I, I followed him on this because I really like the way he approaches this. And so he puts them in two categories, what you must believe and then what is logically necessary. And they're both in the category of essential. But, and, and before I kind of explain the way he, he goes about that, I think the thief on the cross is a great place to start mm. with some of this because here is the famous story where the thief on the cross who previously had been mocking Jesus along with the other one, but he, he believes and Jesus says today you will be with me in paradise. Right. Now, did the thief on the cross have know how exactly how to word the Trinity? Did he have an understanding of, you know, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology? Did he get baptized? Right, he wasn't yeah. baptized. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to start. But then I like to imagine, had he survived, he would have begun to be discipled. He would have grown in the grace and knowledge of Jesus yeah. in his life. He would have come to understand a lot more about who Jesus was. And so I think that's really a good place to start. I also want to take a look at the First Corinthians Creed, which we can in a moment. 
Um, but I'll just give you Norm Geisler's list, okay? So he, he says basically he studied this biblically, he studied it through church history and, and uh, one other way, I can't remember offhand, but he basically came up with eight beliefs. And I kind of feel like this is a pretty good list to start with is I want to give people something they can hold yeah. on to. Now, it's very important when we talk about these beliefs that when he's saying these are eight things you have to believe, he means not like explicitly. You don't have to have a theology degree or be able to explain it really well, but at least implicitly, you'd have to have some knowledge of these things. And so he lays it out like this. Uh, I'm a sinner. You'd have, to, you'd have to know and believe that you need to be saved. And, and you'd have to in some sense, no, you're not giving your life to this pantheon of gods, like this basically monotheism. You'd have to have some implicit knowledge that God is one. Um, the necessity of grace, you know, that you can't earn it. It's not something that you can do a bunch of good works to earn. So that would be the third one. Uh, and the fourth and fifth go together. That would be Christ's deity and his humanity. Again, you wouldn't have to be, you don't have to explain it like a theologian, but just you'd have to know that the person you're putting your trust in is God. And that he also, like the incarnation, he's fully human, fully God. He had this dual nature and uh, uh, just at least implicitly. And then Christ's atoning death, that, that Christ died for my sins. And that, again, you don't have to you know, knock out the whole penal substitutionary atonement doctrine, but you'd have to at least know in some sense that he took your place. Mm -hmm. He was your substitute. He right. died on the cross for your sins. Uh, the bodily resurrection. Of course, Paul tells us that if that didn't happen, our faith is in vain. Right. So that's, that's a big one. And then finally, the necessity of faith, which we sort of touched on before with yeah. the airplane analogy. It's not just you check all your boxes because demons check all those boxes. They believe yeah. all those things. But you, it's putting your trust in Jesus. And, and then, of course, well, you know, we haven't said anything about the virgin birth or the Trinity right. uh, or even the doctrine of the Bible. Um, and those are things that Geisler would put in the category of logically necessary, mm -hmm. where, um, you, you know, you wouldn't deny the doctrine of the Trinity or the virgin birth, because those things are directly tied into some of these more core essential doctrines. Now, he would put the Bible in a different category, even as the Chicago Statement does. Like they say on the statement, this isn't th something you have to believe to be saved, but it's very dangerous. Like there are beliefs that you can hold that might not affect your actual salvation, but they can lead you down a very dangerous path. Yeah, I think my concern that I see happening among Christians sometimes is to engage in like this minimalistic approach and just leave it there. Right. You know, like it's, I like how Geisler frames that up of like, these are some basic things that you would kind of need to have some level of awareness about, you know, to, to become saved. But what I often see is that Christians kind of stay in that place. Yeah. And they don't understand that Christianity is an entire worldview. Another way of identifying essentials that I found very helpful. Now I lean, um, I'm a weird, combina eclectic combination of theology, theological traditions, but I kind of characterize myself as being a charismatic Anglican. Mm -hmm. I believe in the continuation of the gifts, but I really have a deep appreciation for the liturgy and, yeah. and historic Christianity. So in our family, we've gone through the catechism mm -hmm. and in the catechism it identifies three major themes in scripture as being the essentials you you train your children through the catechism that's what it means you said earlier discipleship mm -hmm. same thing mm -hmm. um but the lord's prayer the ten commandments and the apostles creed this is how christian children have historically been discipled mm and putting out the questions and answers. And it really gives a more fully orbed Christian worldview. So I'm all for like, we can have the conversation about that core, mm -hmm. but we don't wanna leave people yes. there. It, it, that's too minimalistic. We have to understand that this is a network of interconnected beliefs and that it's a fairly robust network mm -hmm. of interconnected beliefs. Yes. So it's not, five or six things, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's a lot of things. And I think so. that's a very important point because one of the things that I see when I, you know, go online and you see people have different ministries and there can be an error people make 
where they do just say, okay, well, this is the course, so nothing else is really, we can just agree to disagree. The rest is all secondary. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah, everything else is secondary. And I, I agree with you. I think that's not true. I think there are beliefs that you could be a Christian and have a wrong belief about something, but it could, it could lead you down a bad path. It would be better to have this more network idea, this interconnected, it's a whole worldview, like, like you said. Yeah. And interestingly, Krista, I think that that creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is way more robust than people give it credit for. So if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, of course, this is a creed that most scholars, including very skeptical and even atheistic New Testament scholars, will affirm this is like one of the earliest creeds, probably the earliest creed in the history of Christianity, uh, dating, depending on who you ask, anywhere from a few months, 18 months to five, six years after Jesus' resurrection. And again, a creed is just a summary statement of our faith. It's a shorthand way yeah. that Christians often would engage in to summarize their faith, often repeated in the worship service Yes, as, as a point of um, building community of these are the things that we unite around. Yeah, this, are... we're all on the same page yeah. with these things. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at that First Corinthians Creed, so this is what Christianity was to people who, I mean, didn't have a New Testament yet. This was uh, before Paul wrote his letters. This is before uh, the, you know, probably the gospels were written. So this was, this was the earliest Christianity. And Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first belief. And I love this creed because it doesn't just say the death of Christ. It's, there's a reason, there's a divine mm -hmm. reason there that Christ died for our sins. There's some meaningful thing happening in the divine realm about solving the sin problem mm -hmm. with what he accomplished on the cross. And that's directly connected with the scriptures. Now, what do you think the significance, I'd love to get your comments on the significance of tying the atonement with the scriptures, of course, they didn't have the New Testament yet, so they were relying on that old covenant. Yes. So, I think it's so important for Christians to be rooted and grounded, not just in the New Testament, yes, but to understand the Old Testament. It's something I talk on my channel a lot about, and so many people write into me and say, "I've never heard this before." Mm. You know, like my pastor never teaches on the on the Old Testament. And we have to understand that Christ's death is a fulfillment of what we call as a shadow in the Mosaic Covenant. And it is these, the idea of the sacrifice, the priest, the temple, these were all things that pointed us forward to Christ. They were shadows of what would be to come and that are fulfilled in, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so when believers are putting their faith and hope and confidence in Christ's death, um, again, it's not just intellectual assent of checking a box of mm -hmm. this is a historical event that happened. They're, they're embedding in that belief everything that came forward from the old covenant and was promised to be fulfilled in the new covenant and that's why the book of hebrews is mm. absolutely yes. important so it's not enough just to worship the correct god if we're following the pattern of scripture we have to worship the correct god correctly mm. we have to have the proper sacrifice the proper blood the proper priest the going into the temple where and all of these things are fulfilled in christ yes. so not just any old sacrifice will do Right. And just as in the old covenant, there were improper sacrifices. You could not get forgiveness of sins by doing a sacrifice any kind of way. It had to be done in a certain kind of a way. And all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. And so we don't go into the Holy of Holies any other way yeah. except through the Son, through the blood, through the sacrifice, Jesus as our high priest. That's yeah. how we go and make our petitions known in the Holy of Holies. So Jesus wasn't just killed because he spoke truth to power or sacrificed, you know, at the hands of an angry mob. There was more going on there. There's a lot more going According on According to this creed there was, because <laughs> yes. it's so directly connected to that old covenant. Yeah. I just, I mean, that's just the first thing the creed says, yeah. is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Then it says that he was buried. Mm -hmm. I talked with a philosopher about this once, who's been on the show, um, 
uh, Richard Howe, and, and he's, he pointed out that, well, why is that in there? Why is it in there that he was buried? You have this pattern happening in this creed that I see, where you have the belief, you have scriptural support, and then you have evidentiary support. So that Christ died for our sins, there's this, in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried. Well, that's, that's evidence that he was dead, that he died, that it really happened. And everybody knew it. And then the next belief is that he was raised on the third day, and then we see again, in accordance with the scripture. And so there's this dependence on a high view of um, deep belief in the Old Testament scriptures being the word of God that's interconnecting all of these beliefs that these early Christians had. And then, of course, it goes on to say, uh, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then Paul goes on to list 500 more eyewitnesses. So again, you have that evidence there. So you have the belief, the resurrection in accordance with the scriptures. And then you have this eyewitness testimony, many of whom were still alive when this right. is written. Uh, if it weren't true, they wouldn't have said, hey, all these people who are walking around and can read this, you know, we're alive uh, if, if it wasn't true. And uh, I think that now this is a good start. It's not the whole Christian worldview, but it's a really good place to start. And this was, like I said, arguably the earliest creed that Christians sort of used to say, hey, we're on the same page about about these beliefs. I think it's interesting if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15, it, Paul's discussion, then he goes on to talk about our own resurrection and that that is immediately built on top of the creed. And, and we get all kinds of information that because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise and that there's a hope of eternity in Christ. And so it is a very robust statement um, mm -hmm. and extremely powerful. Uh, one time uh, someone asked me, who was a family member who is not saved, and, and he asked me, why are you a Christian? And I think he expected me to just give him my testimony and I said, oh, that's easy. It's because I'm totally 100% persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, that changes everything. And that was not the answer he was expecting. Uh -huh. And it was like, oh, well, tell me more about that. You know. And so I think that that interconnection between the historical events and then the, the, the belief, the implications of that for our life is, is an very important connection to mm -hmm. help people make. Yeah. So it's theology is not just um, some abstract thing in a book. Mm -hmm. It absolutely ought to change and transform our lives. And mm -hmm. that's really why I became a theologian mm -hmm. is because I really saw the power of right beliefs. Yes. Well, and so that's the first century. That's, you know, there are other creeds. Yes. In fact, many Christians aren't aware. I wasn't aware of this. So maybe more people, you know, other Christians know this and I just didn't. But I did not know this until I started studying apologetics and theology. And that's that there are dozens of early creeds that mm -hmm. are embedded throughout our New Testament. Yep. Gary Habermas has done some great work on this, um, identifying some of these creeds. And, you know, this is there are certain ways Greek scholars are able to identify these creeds right. that we as in native English speakers who don't speak Greek wouldn't necessarily pick up on. There's syntax, there's linguistics, there's gram grammar things they look for. Uh, but there are creeds that have to do with the deity of Jesus mm -hmm. embedded in our New Testament. So that was another one of those really important beliefs to uh, the early Christians. Of course, that even being affirmed by non-Christian historical sources, Pliny the Younger writing to the Emperor Trajan, saying these Christians are worshiping Christ as, as a, or they're singing hymns to Christ as mm -hmm. to a God. And, and so it was not only clear with those creeds inside, but also to some of this secular history that that's what was going on. They were worshiping Christ as a God. And so I think that, you know, the deity of Christ emerging so early, contrary to what a lot of skeptics say, that that was something that developed over time or right. the legend. Um, but it's interesting, too, because we've, we've talked about the early creed, we've talked about the Nicene Creed, but sort of somewhere in between there is the rule of faith. And so this would be second century, um, and Michael Kruger's done some really great work on this, uh, second century Christianity. Different regions had different rules of faith. This was Now, the rule of faith was different than a creed. 
um, in that they weren't summarizing their beliefs. What they were doing was summarizing the apostles' teaching. So they right. weren't saying, like, this is what we all agree is a belief we hold, but this is what the apostles are teaching. So this was, you know, uh, books that, I mean, not books, I'm sorry, but lists and uh, different regions had different rules of faith, but Michael Kruger kind of sums them all up. It's very similar to what we've been saying this whole time. Yeah. You have that I'm a sinner, human depravity, you have um, the fall, you have even more robust things involving Jesus' virgin birth, his deity, salvation, redemption, um, his, Jesus' second coming. Uh, this is all circulating in the second century. Right. Like this isn't something that the Baptists made up in 1950. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a very important point because I think that there is a tendency in American Protestantism to focus on a third category of beliefs that we haven't talked about yet that I call denominational distinctives. Mm. Um, often they're called secondary beliefs, but I prefer the term denominational distinctives because I think then, you know, we're talking about things like the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, do we baptize babies versus believers, and that means am I a Baptist or a Presbyterian, you know? Mm -hmm. so. These are things that we can explore, we can have a robust debate about, we can, um, that's an in-house conversation between mm -hmm. Christians. But, but differentiating between these, these essentials, what I call core beliefs and also convictions versus denominational distinctives, but there's so much emphasis these days on denominational distinctives mm -hmm. that if you don't hold to, let's say, the reform view of predestination, well, I'm going to put you on a discernment blog right. and, and call you out. Yes. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, th that's a denominational distinctive. Mm -hmm. Let's differentiate between that. We can have a robust discussion yes. about it. We can have a, a Bible study, you know, we can read some books together and talk about it, but let's differentiate that from the rule of faith, from the Apostles' Creed, from from these things that we've been talking about yeah. as core, core beliefs and convictions. And I think that the, I'd really love to camp here for a minute because I, I think this point that you've brought up is hugely important because I, I see, and I even wrote about this in my book, that I get very um, discouraged when I see Christians attacking other Christians over, again, not unimportant things. Yeah. But we're, they're going to call someone a false teacher over what is more of a denominational distinctive, even something I may disagree with and may even choose not to attend a church that believes that. Right. So dividing in that sense, but not as a brother or sister in Christ. Um, but the calling people false teachers over these things, there's one in particular that many people emailed me, isn't this person a false teacher? Isn't this person? And every time I would say, well, show me what it is they're teaching that's false. And it, lit it came down to that it was a woman who had taught with men in the room and that she leaned more uh, to the charismatic side of things. Um, well, I grew up in a denomination that ordained female pastors. Now, it's my position now. I disagree with that. I think that's incorrect. Um, but they gave me the gospel. And I can't deny that. They gave me the real gospel. And I disagree with them on some things now. And I think they're important. I'm not saying that it's just, you know, this one bucket and then everything else, whatever. We just agree to disagree. No, it's let's let's have those debates. Let's yeah. let's fight for what's biblically true. But um, I can't call someone a false teacher because they believe that God spoke to them or that. Um, and I, of course, I want to be very careful what I mean by that. I, you know, we're, I'm not talking about new revelation where somebody thinks they're preaching, you know, yeah. like writing more scripture, but just God saying, hey, I, I, I think you should go down this path or something right. like that. Um, and, you know, and I just, it's like, I, they never were able to show me anything other than that. And so it's like, well, no, I can't call this person a false teacher. Well, first of all, it's not, I don't have authority to do that anyway. Right. But um, it's like this, this overreaction really it doesn't mean, I mean, maybe you choose not to listen to that teacher. Yeah. Maybe you go, this isn't good for me. I want to go more over here where I feel like this is more biblically sound. But I think this is where it's so important um, because a lot of people, I think, they grew up hearing one thing, and then if they hear something different from that, it sends up a red flag. 
And that red flag may be legit, but it also just might be that you just never heard this before. And that's the thing is, I, I think if, if something is a red flag for you, you know, you're sitting at coffee, your friend brings up a teaching and you're like, whoa, I don't know what to think about that. Mm -hmm. You have to have enough discernment to think through, all right, are we talking about something that is in the Nicene Creed or in the rule of faith or in the, are they redefining marriage? You know, mm -hmm. is it a conviction like going against some of these other more modern creedal statements? Or are we talking about like, they're getting upset with me and calling, calling my testimony into question because I'm not a Calvinist, because right. I don't believe in their version of the sovereignty of God. And like, vice versa. Yeah. Non-Calvinists do it too. They'll Absolutely. say, well, they're a false teacher because they're a Calvinist yeah. or something like that. So we have to discern, like, am I talking about a denominational distinctive or am I talking about a core belief or a conviction? Mm -hmm. And so slowing the conversation down, maybe researching it, figuring it out, what are we talking about here? Because if I've grown up my whole life being a Baptist and then I meet somebody who's an Anglican and they're talking about baptizing babies. Well, if I immediately get in a posture of offense mm. because I've never heard that before, well, that must be heretical. All right, let's, let's slow down and investigate mm -hmm. and ask some questions and figure out what we're talking about. Yeah. So that, that is very, very important. And again, not to say that these things won't have differences and that they're not worthy of a conversation. I am not for theological minimalism of, well, as long as you name the name of Jesus, everything's yeah. cool. That's, yeah. that's not what right. I'm, I'm saying. Um, but really being careful how we're throwing around the H word of heresy. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, you made a, a side comment of like, I don't think that's really my role anyways. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I'm not a bishop. I'm not an ordained minister. I don't, on my channel, spend a lot of time calling people out as heretics. Now, I might say something like, this belief is out of step with historic Christianity, mm -hmm. or this belief seems aberrant, but I try not to use the label of heretic because I'm not a bishop. I, mm -hmm. I've, I haven't been given that role in Christ's body. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I try to defer to people who, yeah. you know, the Lord has put in charge of, mm -hmm. of those conversations. I can contribute, I can have an opinion, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. I, I, I think we have to be careful about how we throw around that word. Yeah. And uh, this, this is, I'm going to bring up a couple of hot button topics that okay. we're going to get into <laughs> it. But, you know, just regarding that, it's like, and here's a perfect example where, you know, we might have a slight disagreement on certain things, but we're sisters in Christ and we're right. going to divide. Like we've talked about this where I'm like, I'll call him a false teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but with the full knowledge, I don't have the authority to do that. But I do want to say that contrary to what often gets said about me, and I know you've probably gotten quite a bit of things said about you that aren't true. To my knowledge, I've actually only named two people with the term false teacher. And I explored it very, very biblically to say, look, this is what the Bible says a false teacher is. Mm -hmm. And women, if you're following this lady, yeah. this is a false teacher. Yeah. And, um, and, but, but I've done it way less than I think people think. Yeah. You know, now I, I have opinions on that, um, but, but yeah, I think that that's, that's a good way to put it. It's like, I don't have the authority to do it, but I might, I might pull that trigger a little quicker than you will. <laughs> well, I, I think it's important for us to have discernment yeah. and, and, but I appreciate that about you, you know, I want to be careful because yeah. I don't want, I want to treat other people's positions the way and with the care and respect, I would want people to treat yeah. my position. That's good. And so that's what my, my friend Ken Samples calls the golden rule of apologetics is that I want to treat others the way I would want to be treated. Yeah. And so I want people to treat my positions fairly. I really try to be careful in how I research things, not overstate my case. Yeah. And using the, the word of heresy, I do with great caution. Not to say I would never do it, mm -hmm. but I, I do it with great caution because I want to be 
very careful in having things well documented mm -hmm. and um, not be calling heresy when it's really just a denominational distinctive. Yes. So. Now, before we get into the hot button topics, um, I want to talk a little bit about that because I think there can be, we were talking about this before we pressed record, is that there can be ignorance, mm. um, but that's a little different than intentionality yes. in teaching something. Talk a little bit about that. That's such an important distinction because I might listen to somebody who, I, I always assume when I hear somebody um, engage in bad doctrine, I give them the benefit of the doubt it's ignorance. Mm. I assume it's ignorance. They haven't been trained properly. Maybe they've never been to seminary. Maybe there's no competent elders in their life that have, have discipled them and, and, and really given them sound doctrine. So I always come from a posture of this is ignorance. Mm -hmm. Ignorance is curable. The cure for that is a Bible study. It's mm -hmm. a private conversation. If I don't know that person, I pray for them that the Lord will send um, competent elders in their life to disciple them properly. Mm -hmm. And that's how I pray for those people when I hear them say false things on the internet. There's a difference between that and people who know right doctrine, but then they want to give me a fresh perspective on the Trinity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm like, uh-uh, no, that's not how we're going to yeah. proceed here. And so when it's like, no, I am intentionally redefining the deity of Christ, or I am intentionally um, calling Jesus uh, a created being, mm -hmm. you know, that to me is far different than the person who just hasn't been trained properly. Yeah. So there's a very famous um, pastor on the East Coast, has a huge following, and there's clips of him floating around on YouTube um, saying things in a very sloppy way about the, the deity of Christ. My fundamental assumption when I watch those clips, I'm not gonna jump on my YouTube channel and say, he's a false teacher, he's a heretic. Now, are those beliefs heretical? Yes, they have been labeled historically as out of bounds of sound doctrine. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can have that conversation, but I'm gonna assume he doesn't know any better. Maybe mm -hmm. he hasn't been to seminary. Then I found out this teacher had a, had a Master of Divinity from a very prestigious seminary. I'm like, he's probably had those classes. Mm -hmm. So now I don't know what to think. I do. <laughs> is he just, I do. <laughs> is he just lazy? Is he sloppy? Like, what's happening here? Well, God, please have his elders have the good sense to yeah. pull him to the side yeah. and say, please stop teaching this, you know? Yeah. So that can get hard, you mm -hmm. know? But um, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's a good posture to take because we're all going to say something stupid online once in a while, yeah. you know, especially in this age where it's all happening sort of, you know, back when I was in the music business, you would do an interview and it was, it was like one time, once a week and you knew exactly what you're going to say and it would go on the radio one time. Yeah. Nobody could ever pull it up again. Yeah. So if you said something dumb, it was gone. It was gone after they heard it. Yeah. But now everything is documented it's and forever. I just think, oh my goodness. So yeah, I think that's a really good posture to take. Um, but I think this is, this is where I think this conversation of ignorance versus intentionality is important. And also there's an element of that that only God knows. Yeah. Um, because Jesus, I, I think, sort of makes this point in Matthew 7 when he talks about false prophets will come in and he says inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They look like sheep. So they're, they're not ignorant. They're not like... Oh, you know, I don't know. No, they actually have intention yeah. of deceiving, and uh, and he calls them wolves. And yeah. so, um, you know, there can be some gray area, I'm sure. But that I think really speaks to that idea of the difference between oh, I, I just I didn't know how to word the Trinity right. You know, it's like I just I don't want people to think oh, I said the Trinity wrong. I'm going to hell. It's right. heresy. Like, I think before I was properly taught about the Trinity, I was probably a modalist. Oh like, yeah, I, I did the egg thing. Yeah, I did I the probably egg thing and all of that. Had it not quite right. Yeah. But that was ignorance. Yeah. That was right. and so then when I was corrected, my soul immediately embraced right. the, the correction. And then when I would teach people, I was very careful to do it properly. 
that's to me far different than somebody from the Watchtower Society coming to that's my right. door and wanting to redefine the Trinity and tell me Jesus is a created being. Way different. That's yeah. intentionality. That's right. And so we see that in the ancient heresy of the Arians, you know, that he, the bishops first took him to the side, mm -hmm. told him, stop teaching this. And then it kept escalating, kept escalating until there was a whole council about it. Yeah. And so we have to think carefully about, about these things. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And just a little pro tip. If you found an analogy for the Trinity, stop. You yeah. Just that's it's heresy. I promise. It's heresy. Just don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hot button topics. Okay. So two, two topics that tend to come up a lot where I think people are misplacing in the core category would be the age of the earth and eschatology. Mm. So eschatology being the doctrine of last things, right. the return of Christ and how all that's going to happen and right. how that squares with Daniel and Revelation and all of that. Right. Um, so, you know, do you have to believe that the earth is, was made in six consecutive days yeah. to be an Orthodox Christian? That's such a great question. So I look at helpful um, summaries again of even like the Nicene Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Almighty creator of heaven and earth. Okay, so what is what is there about creation? In the early church, the the idea of six 24-hour days is a very debated issue. And the emphasis seems to be um, that that God created, that he's the source of all creation, and that nothing created um, doesn't come from him, you know, mm -hmm. that everything comes from him. And um, a belief in a historical Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. And these are the, the really, the truly vital beliefs that the church has identified. Um, I like the Belgic Confession, which, you know, uh, has an extended discussion about creation issues. It's a very helpful confession mm. uh, about creation. Um, the Westminster Confession is the one confession that includes in the space of six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, we could get into a discussion about uh, what the framers of the Westminster Confession meant by that. That's a whole conversation. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's a that's a denominational distinctive mm -hmm. is it's it's a part of the the Westminster Confession is the confessional summary of Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, that's a conversation. Um, I really think the Presbyterian Church in America about 15 years ago did a wonderful study committee on summarizing uh, what they saw as the essentials, the core beliefs when it comes to creation. I think they did a really good job. Mm -hmm. uh, Westminster Seminary, around in that same time frame, about 15 years ago, came out with a very nice summary that I would look at as, as being helpful. Mm -hmm. And neither of those bodies um, looked at the 24 hours as being the primary essential. Mm -hmm. Rather, the emphasis was on the source mm -hmm. and the historical Adam and Eve as mm -hmm. really being foundational. So yeah. that's kind of how I've thought that through, yeah. just looking at it from you know, what have Christians historically identified. Mm -hmm. Now, we can have the conversation about the details and how all that works. Again, that's a Bible study. That's mm -hmm. a conversation yeah. about how we interpret the record of nature and how those two realms intersect. Very yeah. robust discussion right. we can have a, around all of that. Yeah. And I think, too, there are a lot of misunderstandings among Christians. And again, I'm just speaking for myself because this was kind of what I thought. I, nobody ever told me growing up, if you don't believe that the, the creation was six consecutive 24-hour days, then, you know, that's heresy. Nobody ever said that to me, but I sort of caught that. And so when Same. I... Yeah. Same so when me. I began to study apologetics and I found out that some of my favorite apologists were old earth creationists, I had like this little panic, but, but I had to assess it biblically. And what I discovered was that there's a big misunderstanding in the church. A lot of, I think, people who grew up with that sort of caught worldview are under the impression that if somebody believes that the earth 
is, you know, was created in a longer period of time than, now notice I haven't used the word literal, because old earth creationists and young earth creationists both take that account literally. Yes. They believe it's six literal days. Yeah. Now it's the interpretation of what the word day means that there's the disagreement. Whether it's six literal 24 hour days or six literal long periods of yes, time. Yes, epochs yeah. of time, or if there was space between six literal right. days, all of those kinds of questions. Uh, but they all, they believe in a literal historical Adam and Eve. They believe that the creation story, of course, has it's poetic. Real history. It's real history. It has poetic language, of course, but it's it's actual history. It reflects real events. Right. Yeah. And so there, the third view then would be more of the theistic evolutionary view, right. which would pretty much, you know, without a lot of gymnastics, you don't have a, a historical Adam and Eve. Um, and so in my view, and I, you know, I, you can give your thoughts on this too, like I think that's a wrong view. I think that's a hill I would die on. But at the same time, I also believe someone could be saved and not believe in a historical Adam and Eve. And that, in my view, would be a matter of discipleship. It would be, like you said, a Bible study. And even if we could disagree, that might be important enough to me to yeah. not go to a church that teaches that. Um, but but it's important for us to, I mean, we're getting in a lot of nuance here, but I think that's important because we don't want to just throw our brothers and sisters over, you know, overboard, Yeah. but also not say, well, it's not important. It's very important because if you don't have a literal Adam and Eve, you don't have the gospel really. Like Romans 4 just falls apart. Yeah. You said a lot there. So let me kind of just <laughs> touch on a couple of points and, and disclose my personal persuasion is that I'm an old earth creationist. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't take a position. Okay. So that's my official. All right. So I think for me, um, you know, after two and a half decades of working in that realm uh, and having a lot of Bible study and working with scientists, I'm of the persuasion that old earth creationism is probably correct. Now, I could get to heaven and be totally wrong. I, I'm, I'm cool yeah. with that, you know, and... Um, but when I share my faith uh, with a non-Christian, I share it from that point of view. So I do believe that Genesis is real history. I believe when I say uh, historic Adam and Eve, I believe they were the first two humans created. Yes. That's what I Special mean by creation. that. Yeah, miraculously created. I don't believe in theistic evolution. I don't believe in God-guided evolution. Um, I believe in miraculous interventionism. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I am persuaded that the earth is old. It's it's mm -hmm. not thousands of years old. It's billions of years old. So that's kind of how I've worked that out at this point in my journey. But to your question about theistic evolution, I think that these are all conversations about denominational mm -hmm. distinctives, you know. And But when we get to theistic evolution, we start venturing more into the realm of what I see would say is core ideas, mm -hmm. you know, that a historical Adam and Eve do seem to be a necessity from a New Testament perspective. Yeah. If I look at Jesus's genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, it traces it back to Adam. That's right. So it would seem to imply that he's a real person. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at Paul's case for salvation, he compares Adam to, to Jesus, both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. And when I look at Second uh, Peter, he, he understands the first humans and the flood um, as being real historical events, not just um, mytho mythology, ancient Near Eastern mm -hmm. mythology. So I think that we, when we get into the realm of theistic evolution, it's a bit more problematic. I and, agree. And yeah. that can become, for some people, in some cases, a gateway or an on-ramp to more progressive ideas yeah. and progressive Christianity. Because yeah. I've never known a progressive Christian who doesn't also embrace theistic evolution. Yeah, or even Darwinian evolution. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's really, even some would call it a pillar. Some progressive Christians call the acceptance of a Darwinian type of evolution or maybe a theistic evolution as foundational. It's foundational to their doctrine because they reject the fall. Yeah. They, they reject the idea that there was this ontological fall where, 
this sin nature was inherited by humans, generally speaking. So those are all what I would consider to be core beliefs. Yes. You know? Yeah. So, so. it's very, very, I agree with you. It's very important. It's very interlinked. Could a Christian be confused about that? Uh, yes. But it would be one of those things where you would want to to bring help and correction there because yeah. I, I, I think we're on the same page about that. But let's talk about eschatology because okay. this, I mean, we're just going there. <laughs> we're going there. Well, I think this is important because... Um, I think many, I think there is an element of eschatology that hits in the core, and that would be the return of Christ, the yes. second coming being in the future. In the Nicene Creed, in 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, the return of Jesus, the eternal reign of mm -hmm. Christ, um, judging the living and the dead, yes. having an eternal uh, des destination. Um, these are all have historically been part of the church's teaching. And so I would label those things as being core beliefs. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I really like, um, I'm going to give a plug again for my friend, Ken Samples. I know he's coming, he's on, your coming on, the show. on your yeah. podcast. He has kind of embodies this kind of mere eschatology approach mm -hmm. of, you know, what are the essentials? He has a little book about it. And what are those essential doctrines? I, I think the second coming, the judgment, the mm -hmm. eternal destination of heaven and hell these are these yes. are essentials yes I gotta agree. believe those mm -hmm. now if we want to talk about which flavor of the millennium are you pre-millennial post-millennial all millennial mm -hmm. that's a conversation that's a denominational distinctive mm -hmm. that's a bible study that's yep. a we can have a fun conversation over coffee you can put forward your verses, I can put forward my verses, we can try to persuade each other, yeah. that's cool, but we're not going to part ways, I'm not going to set up a discernment blog that, yeah. you know, you're a heretic over a difference on yeah. the millennium. Um, you know, whether or not you believe in like a seven-year tribulation or, you know, whether the Antichrist is coming in at the beginning of the tribulation or midway through the tribulation mm -hmm. or the rapture, these are all denominational distinctives. Yeah. And so I was raised a Baptist in a fundamentalist church. I grew up with the whole nine yards of seven year mm -hmm. tribulation, rapture, antichrist, mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. I got really scared at watching Thief in the Night when I was a young Night. child. Yes. It was like a Christian horror film. Yes, you know? every year. And that was all I ever knew. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in my 20s and um, started learning about other perspectives. I was like, whoa, what is this? Mm -hmm. Again, but that's where we have to have discernment. Are we talking about a core belief right. or a denominational distinctive? Yeah, yeah. So. and I, I think I, I couldn't say it better than any of that. So I'll just add one little thing, and that's that I just think, Christians, we need to hold all of the core essentials of eschatology that you mentioned, future return of Christ, judgment of the living of the dead, eternal destination of heaven and hell, these things that you mentioned, those are key. And the uh, read Revelation. I mean, if you can figure, if you can totally figure out what every single, me even the, the scholars that are within the same view disagree on what some of those metaphors mean. And yeah. um, I think what I, what I would just say is we just need to hold those things humbly and not turn our particular view of the millennium into uh you know, equivalent with the blood atonement or something. I think that we need to, to, to really hold those things humbly and focus on the fact that we, you know, amillennial, premillennial, we all agree Jesus is coming yes. again. Yeah. You know, and how that's going to happen, we might have some, or when that's going to happen in comparison to other events, we might have some disagreement, but I think that that was really well, well stated. So in just a moment, we are going to go over to our Patreon supporter only sort of discussion. Okay. So what I want to let you know, though, is the way we've been doing this has been kind of fun. So if you go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers, you can select different tiers. And there is a tier where you can be a part of our private Facebook group. It's that Facebook group that chooses the questions for the Patreon-only bonus content. So uh, I go on Facebook. I'm going to go on Facebook in just a minute and look up the questions that they want to ask you. And so you can you can ask my guests the questions if you sign up for that tier. So go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers for that. But as we close out this this portion, uh, I'm just going to give you the last word. What, what do you want people to go away with having heard this conversation today? 
I really hope that it, people will, first of all, think through, you know, and study what these essentials are. So they'll kind of have a, a grocery list in their head. Mm -hmm. So when they're at coffee with their friend and, you know, that red flag pops up and a little check in their spirit of like, I don't know what this is. What kind of belief is this? Mm -hmm. They'll know, like they'll have a little grid of what to run it through and they can know when to really have a legitimate concern or if this is like, oh, this could be fun. I don't know yeah. anything about this. Yeah. You know, I've never heard of amillennialism. Yeah. Let's talk about it, yeah. you know? And that that's just an opportunity of learning. Mm -hmm. And and so just, just having that little grid in your head. And also the other thing I'd leave people with is if, if anyone ever comes to you and says they have a fresh perspective or a new doctrine or a new spin mm. on a very old belief, that right there is the time to kind of mentally run away, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's, we don't want fresh perspectives yes. on the Trinity. Amen. The, the smartest people have already lived. Mm -hmm. The church has probably already worked this problem out. We want to investigate what some old dead guys have already written about. <laughs> Yes. And and so that's how we go down the path often of doctrinal problems. Mm -hmm. So if people just just are aware of like whenever somebody says, you know, they have a, a new thought that nobody's ever had before that yeah. that's not healthy. That's, that's danger. That, that's da that's a that is a danger sign. Mm -hmm. So stick with. You know, what has the church historically taught about this? Let me stay calm and inquire and learn. Mm -hmm. It'll be okay. Yeah. Everything will be okay. That's good. So, Read the old dead guys, <laughs> especially Augustine. Yes. Um, which actually, Ken Samples, your friend, is going to be coming on the podcast because he's an Augustine expert. So we're going to talk about some of the more progressive views of sexuality and how sometimes... Augustine just gets blamed. Yes. He gets blamed. So we're going to talk about it. But if you're watching on YouTube, uh, hit subscribe. Make sure you're still subscribed if you subscribed before. Click the bell icon. That lets you know uh, every time we release a new video. If you're listening on the audio platforms, uh, Spotify or iTunes, leave us a great review. It really helps get the message out to more people. Thanks. We'll see you next time.